Good evening and welcome to the uh, to the fourth of out of our six moving, teaching, inspiring lectures, um, co-organised by the National Trust and the University of Oxford, and masterminded uh, by my colleague in the front row, Alice Perkis. Um, my name's Oliver Cox, I'm Heritage Engagement Fellow here at the University of Oxford, and it's my job to uh, lead and generate all sorts of exciting collaborations between uh, the brilliant researchers here at the University of Oxford from a whole range of different disciplines and connect them with the equally brilliant and fantastic people that work in our heritage and museums sector. So we're really, really lucky and we're really excited that today we're going to be taking a sort of little step out of the ordinary or maybe even our comfort zone for those of us history lovies like me that like stuff, um, to think about heritage as a business. And I think what will become clear over today's conversation and presentations from our two fantastic speakers is that we need this kind of dialogue and we need this kind of relationship between all different aspects of uh, the heritage sector and the university sector. So I'm delighted and to welcome our speakers today and I'll just run you through who they are, why they're very important and why we're so lucky to hear their insights today before I'll explain how today's session will work. So our first speaker is Hilary McGrady, Director of Operations and Consultancy for the National Trust. Hilary leads the National Trust's senior operations team, the consultancy and the central operations team to ensure collaboration and joined up working both centrally and regionally across operations and consultancy. She's accountable for developing plans to implement the trust strategy and for developing the management information required to drive improved performance. Hilary leads the business changes required by the implementation of the Trust's Systems Simplification Programme, SSP, to those of you in the know. Um, Hilary is a member of the National Trust executive team and was formerly director of the National Trust for Northern Ireland and for London and the South East. Our Oxford colleague joining us today is Dr Pegram Harrison, Fellow in Entrepreneurship at the University of Oxford. Um, Pegram is a Fellow in Entrepreneurship at the Said Business School and his research and teaching concerns entrepreneurship and leadership in an entrepreneurial con con uh, context. He teaches more entrepreneurship, pre-startup, opportunity recognition and business planning and leadership, especially in entrepreneurial contexts to executives and diploma students, as well as on the MBA and undergraduate programmes. Pegram has worked as a strategy consultant around the world for both public and private sector organisations, as well as for governments in both developed and developing countries. He's a founder member of the Pan-European Research Group, an association of researchers based at Paris Dauphin uh, University, working on European entrepreneurship and higher education. He also teaches on the Oxford Cultural Leaders course. So having heard from Hilary and Pegram, then our colleague Charles Pugh, consultancy manager from London in the South East, will chair an in-conversation. And Charles is the company-based supervisor for the trusted source, KTP. As a consultancy manager working in the National Trust's London and South East region, Charles leads a mixed discipline team of conservation consultants delivering specialist services to National Trust properties. 
A former governor of the Ashridge Business School, Charles is fascinated by the opportunities for creativity and innovation that are presented by the confluence of the heritage and conservation sectors with the worlds of education and commerce. Right, enough from me. Now we get to hear from Hilary McGregor. Brilliant, thanks. Good evening, everyone. Um, first thing to say is just how delighted I am to be here. Um, I don't get to talk about this very often. It's a, you know, it's when you work for an organisation like the National Trust, people don't really get out of bed on the making money thing. They get out of bed for conservation and access and for what we do. So this is a real treat for me to be able to talk about what I'm passionate about, actually, because I, and I've used this title very deliberately, I think of my role as quite interesting, your intro to when you're listening to what your job is when someone else is describing it. I describe when people ask me what do I do, I said we are in the business of conservation access. I'm very proud of the fact that I am working with my team to take a business-like approach to what we do. We do get out of bed for conservation access, but we should do that in some really important to us in terms of using our charitable funds. We should do that in a way that is business-like, that makes the best use of those funds. So I'm here to talk about being in the business of conservation access. And my first sort of challenge I'd to you is to think about that. So I think about business as being an embedded part of what we do, not an appendage and a thing that just makes the money to, for us to do our charitable cause. Before I get into that, though, I thought it might be helpful to give you a little teeny insight into well, me. This is about me. Why did I end up in this role and why is, why is it, you know, it's kind of the journey that I came on. Um, I actually went to art college originally and art continues to be my passion and it's one of the reasons I'm still very, you know, I came to the trust because, you know, it, it resonated with me as something I'm really um, interested in. Um, but for all sorts of reasons, which I'll not get into now, I actually started my career in brand marketing. So I spent the first 10 years working in the drinks industry. Um, and clearly that was a really commercial environment. I learned lots of things about making money, but actually probably much more important and for you to think about is that I learned things like the power of brand, the power of understanding your audience, what motivates them to want to support your brand, whatever brand that is, the understanding between the link of, you know, how do you um, capture value out of that kind of loyalty to a brand? What are the things you need to do about that? How do you engage people in a brand and keep them? So all of those are really, really important lessons that I, you know, learnt. And they, they work you really hard. And the drinks industry is probably one of the best in terms of training. Um, but, it, you know, selling drink didn't actually get me out of bed at, uh, in the morning. Um, and so... The reason I've got this photograph up, um, you'll figure out that I'm from Northern Ireland. Sorry about the accent, you'll have to... I'll try to slow down, that's one of the things about Northern Irish people. Um, so I'm born and educated in Northern Ireland, and this photograph is taken from Divis Mountain. <clears throat> I don't know if any of you have been to Northern Ireland, but Divis is the mountain. It's not a very pretty mountain, I have to, I have to admit. It's not particularly pretty. But it's very important because it sits above Belfast, so you can see first in the background and it was completely um, a no-go zone because it was um, garrisoned by the MOD during the troubles you just couldn't go there so. and about 15 years ago the National Trust um, took it over and all of a sudden this no-go zone was a place that was completely for everybody everybody could go there everybody could feel safe there everybody could take the benefit of this amazing place and actually from a nature conservation uh, perspective it's it's a really important 
um, place. And it was that moment where I thought, well, I want to work for an organisation like that, that can deliver that kind of benefit to a community that needed it, frankly. Um, but what can I bring, what skills can I bring to play in this organisation? And I felt very strongly that I could bring um, my experience from a commercial point of view to play in something that was about delivering benefit. So I don't know that there's very many people in the Trust that, as I say, it are motivated about making money, but most, all of us, are motivated about delivering the benefit that the money delivers. Just to orientate you in terms of my role, it is a bit of a strange title, Operations and Consultancy. Um, in other language, you would call it Chief Operating Officer. Essentially, I'm responsible for what happens out on the ground. When you go to a property and the teams are working there, be they volunteers or staff, essentially I'm responsible for what they get up to. I'm also responsible for, when we refer to consultancy, all the experts that support the, the work that goes on at the property. So everything from the archaeologist to the visitor experience people, to the builders, to the rural surveyors, they form part of our internal consultancy. And so they form a group out in the regions and the countries that support um, my team. Um, I also, as of last November, power box, commercial box, uh, have a really important role in that I also lead up the commercial team and the commercial team consists of um, the people that run retail, catering, holiday cottages and a bunch of other bits and bobs, e-commerce and so on. They have a whole trust function, so they look across the whole of the organisation. Uh, they develop product, they develop standards policy and so on. And it's a really important part of what we do because in moving that into operations consultancy, we now have a rounded responsibility for what happens on the ground. So it's an important part of my team. Overall, um, 11,000 full-time equivalents, roughly. Um, that's in peak season when all the seasonal staff turn up. Um, and an eye-watering 60,000 volunteers. Huge number. And is usually very quick to tell me that that equates to, oh, 2,000-something. 2,300, I can never quite remember the FTA if you were to put that in the staff terms, but the bigger thing about volunteers is this is a huge workforce um, that not only deliver work for us, but are advocates and supporters of what we do. So it's a big old operation, I think, and when people talk about small businesses, big businesses, we are a big business in uh, the UK. I just wanted to give you a sense of, I suppose, the challenge that I wonder to would any of you recognise this in, a, in an Oxford context? How does commerciality sit in the trust? How do people perceive our commercial activity? And I just thought this kind of captured it. Um, the sense that, you know, the brush is what we do. And the slightly begrudging thing that actually you still need that old dustpan to actually make it happen. And there is a recognition that that needs to happen. But you know what? This is a partnership. And I suppose my ambition, and I guess the challenge to you, is to think about how do you move past that, you know, slightly begrudging partnership to actually something that is genuinely a partnership and can be part of everything that you do. So my challenge, and my challenge with my team, is to constantly say, how do we get these two things to blend? So what do I mean by business, just to orientate you? Well, it is easy to jump to the things that, well, the things you sell, of course, that's our business, you know, retail and catering. But actually, our business model is based on membership. Be in no doubt that is what over a third of our income comes through membership. They are important from an income point of view, of course, but they're also really important from an access and a support point of view. But they are fundamentally the basis of our business model. 178, these are numbers from uh, last year, 178 million um, of income comes through our members. And the reason I have this photograph is because our members clearly are part of our visitor business. 
So I see on the big arm of what, so the more members you have, the more people come to visit your property. So the visitor business side is the other dimension of, of that relationship. The more obvious bits to think about, catering is the next biggest source uh, of income, 61.5 million last year through catering. That's all of our uh, tea rooms, um, including pop-up tea rooms or that type of thing. Retail accounts for just uh, nearly um, 50 million and growing. Retail is probably growing faster than catering at the moment. Sorry, retail, I know you're here. Or catering, I know you're here. Um, let estate, our fourth biggest income stream, 44.6 million let estate. So a range of um, houses from tiny cottages to very large, um, very large farms and uh, and large buildings generally um, across the country, um, both an asset and um, quite a challenge in terms of upkeep. And finally, holiday cottages accounting for just over 10 million of our income. So if you put that whole package together, all of a sudden you do realise those numbers are, are big. Um, our income uh, streams are important to us and all of them are interrelated, clearly. You need your visitors to come before they use your tea room. You need your... Um, your tea room to provide a great visitor experience to ensure that they keep coming back again. So we think of these things as interrelated, they're not separate streams of themselves. So all of that amounts to figures in terms of total income last year was 522 million. You'll have figured out that those numbers didn't add up to 522 million because of course we have other income streams, fundraising, investments and so on. Um, but of that 155 million comes through property, people paying at the door, the catering, the retail and so on. So it's a very sizable amount of income um, and one that we seek to develop on an ongoing basis and I'm glad to say that that has continued to rise year on year. But you, we don't make money for the sake of money, back to my original point, we make money to be able to spend it on our cause. And just, but there is a point, and I'll come back to it in a moment, running the business costs money as well. People and the costs that go with it, um, as well as the money that goes into the projects, those are the conservation projects that we do. And the split is roughly, last year was roughly 44% um, on the operating costs and 56%. It's slightly hard to pull those uh, numbers apart because some costs within that operating cost will relate to what we call short-term cyclical, so small uh, projects that you would do on an everyday basis. But broadly speaking, that's the, the, the split. So all of those income streams, also cost, of course they do. So I just wanted to run through some of the things, and when I was thinking about, well, you know, I can talk about our businesses, I'm not sure how particularly helpful that would be, although I'm happy to take um, more questions on that, but I did think it would be worth just considering, well, the, I guess the challenges that we face um, when we think about commercial and the things that we do as, a, as an organisation, and the first and most obvious is commercial versus conservation, what we're here to do. Um, and again, I, I guess if you think of commercial as being only about making money, you miss the point, because actually in everything that we do, there will be a commercial dimension. So from a conservation point of view, that could be everything from how do you procure, how do you make sure you spend your money on the right things to get the most benefit, um, how do you account for the cost of all of those additional visitors. I mean, it is kind of staggering. Uh, Ten years ago, we had, oh, I'm going to have to look at the numbers, just over 14 million visitors coming to our pay for entry properties, the, people, the, the properties you have to show your membership card at. This doesn't count all those lovely outdoor spaces. Last year we uh, welcomed 24 million 
visitors to our pipe for entry property. So it's massive growth over that period of time. And it is likely, very likely, that we'll uh, make 5 million members this year. We thought we would make it in 2020 and we, we think we'll probably make it this year. Our growth has been huge and there's been lots of reasons behind that. I'd like to think from an entrepreneurial point of view, we've really tried to tap into the things that our members want. They want better value from their membership. We used to open six, nine months a year. We're pretty much open all year now. When they come, they want different things. So most properties you go to, you'll get more than the house. You'll get, you'll get walks, you'll get a programme of events, you'll get a playground very often for your children. You'll get all sorts of different components. We've extended our opening hours. Again, that's better value from a member point of view. But really importantly, I think we've tapped into our members wanting to support our cause. More and more people seeing the value of what the National Trust is about and supporting us from that point of view. But that growth is a challenge. I'm the first to acknowledge it. I'm going to come on to it in a moment. So there is a cost, a conservation cost. And we constantly uh, challenge, and I get challenged all the time by our trustees to say, are all these people coming through our houses not damaging? And we have other methods of measuring that. We, we call it conservation performance indicators. So every year we do a check to say, are the roofs okay? Are the floors okay? Are the collection, uh, is the collection being damaged by the number of people coming through? So we do keep a very close check on it. And last year we acknowledged that our gardens in particular, for example, were definitely feeling the weight of additional visitors. But by and large, we're getting much better at managing visitors. So it's less about stopping visitors coming because we have an access agenda here and more about managing it. So conservation has a role from a commercial point of view, but we're really mindful to always ensure that there's the right balance. I put this slide up because cons uh, commercial has also a balance with experience. So on one hand, while it's brilliant to have lots of you know, visitors coming to us, the more visitors you have, the more potential that you have to compromise the experience they get. You know yourself, if you're stood in a crocodile going through a house, it's not a brilliant experience. If you're you know, trying to get into a car park on a hot bank holiday day, it's not a great experience. So there is clearly a balance for us to, to try to strike here. And there's a cost, again, in terms of making sure you've got car parks um, that are big enough, that you've got all the infrastructure, the loose, everything else that goes with it, that your tea rooms can cope, all of those things. And that's a constant balance and an investment requirement. Access. So there is experience, but there is also access. And access isn't always simply about coming to our properties. And they're not always the ways that you would not... Delivering access is not always the way that you would typically think that, you know, that we would achieve it. And I can see you're all laughing, aren't you? Full dark. Um, at least the women are. Um, and we, we deliver access in all sorts of different creative ways, actually. So this year, we've just upgraded massively our uh, digital platform. So more and more people accessing what we do from a digi uh, through digital uh, formats, access to our, um, to our conservation, um, I've forgotten the name. <laughs> uh, yes, our collections management system, that was it, sorry. Um, so lots of different ways of doing it. The top uh, right-hand photograph, that was a new cycle trail we put in at Land Hydrock. Um, lots of programming, different types of family types of events. Filming actually generated nearly four million for us last year from our sites. Pool Dark was clearly one of them, very successful, and drove lots of visitors to our sites afterwards. Um, but actually, filming goes on all over the country and, and is a growing part of our income stream. And the one in the middle, lovely old Easter eggs. Um, <laughs> Easter gate, as we've started, or egg gate, as we, we call it. Um, this is a really interesting one, actually, because I think, you know, notwithstanding all the, the, the press coverage, which, incidentally, I'm pretty sure, drove 
our best week ever in terms of visitors. <laughs> we had 1.1 million people come to our properties that week before Easter, so thank you Daily Mail. Um, but I think it is an interesting one because actually for a while we have been thinking, oh, Easter eggs, lots of Easter trails, is that quite right in terms of our spirit of place? Is that quite right for us as, a, as an organisation? So there is something really important about access and the commerciality around that that must be balanced with reputation, that must be balanced with does it, does it feel right, does it tell the right story about our properties and what we're about? So that's something that we grapple with day and daily, really. And then engagement. It is no, we're really clear that we've gone past the days of we're just about a visitor business, come and have a good day out, have your cup of tea, bye-bye. We want people to come and have a deep and much more meaningful experience when they come to our properties. We want them to go away with something that makes them think. Either, well, I saw that and that has prompted me to think about something else. That could be about how do I look after my garden better. That could be about, well, how would I learn more about that piece of art? So every interaction, no matter what it is, needs to have engagement, and that applies as much to our commercial activities as it does to anything else. So when you have a cup of tea, well, wouldn't it be great if that bowl of soup came from the, the wall garden? Um, if you're in that tent and you're in, at one of our properties and you're getting the, you know, the glorious surroundings that we can provide, you're thinking, actually, this is a place that is worth looking after. Uh, you know, and, and we've got so much better at this. So the, you know, the retail... Um, product that we've been developing of late, you know, absolutely makes a link back to the properties from whence they have come, or they've been inspired. So some of the designs, for example, uh, scarves inspired by the landscape uh, at Dunwich. Um, so those types of things that make the direct link between the experience that you want to have with the thing that you are buying. And lovely old systems and processes. <laughs> this I definitely do not get out of bed for, however. Um, yeah, the reality is that no business can survive these days unless you have the right back office support to enable not just you as a business to run efficiently and effectively, but, but our visitors, our supporters are now expecting this. Visitor expectations have risen massively. They don't want a dodgy old cup of instant coffee, they want a cappuccino. They, they want to be able to scan their, their membership card. They don't, you know, most people actually are way past doing all of the paper stuff. So there is a real balance between making sure that we've got the right investment in this kind of stuff that is appropriate for an organisation of our scale without trying to be too clever about it. And it's all, you know, do you invest in tills or do you put a new roof on Durham? Those are the kind of things that we're, we're faced with sometimes, and that's really hard, really hard. Um, but I just don't think a, a business in this century can survive unless you keep pace with the kind of investment that's needed, whether that's tills, whether that's the car park machine's really interesting actually because um, people quite like their stickers. It's really interesting, you know. People get attached to things like stickers and handbooks, you know, while we think, you know, everything is online. So you have to balance what consumers want versus what actually technology would tell you you need to do to future think. So to, in finishing, really all I would say is all of that is important. The money that we generate is massively important because it delivers something very important, but it must be rooted in our cause. People don't like it when they think you're making money for money's sake. They want to know why, you're, why they're parting with their pennies and why that commercial activity that you're doing, whether it's membership through to a cup of tea, delivers the thing that they want to support you for. Thank you. Thank you, Hilary. And hello, everybody. 
Um, welcome um, from me to Oxford. I'm going to try to um, take uh, a somewhat different view of much the same uh, material. Um, Hillary and I had a long talk about uh, how, we'd, how we'd coordinate our presentations for you, and we found there was so much in common that there's a risk of repeating. But what I want to do is to give a, a, a different spin, uh, an Oxford spin, an academic spin, on this uh, excellent example of, um, of practice, of how, of how it's actually done. Um, so having, having been queued up by um, such, such good examples and cogent and, and articulate explanations of how it all works, I'm going to turn to discussing Heritage's business um, from first a more general point of view, and then I'll bring it right back to uh, the context of the trust. So um, it's big business. These numbers, and I don't need to go through all of them, but um, indicate that uh, as a, um, a, a sector of the economy, heritage as a whole is huge. Um, the, the overall, um, uh, uh, what's called global value add, uh, is about 20 billion pounds. That's a, that's a massive sector. It's about the fourth or fifth largest sector of the economy, driven ma mainly through tourism, but by heritage. Um, and it, it, it results in jobs, it results in uh, payments in tax, it results in general um, benefit to the economy, without which the country would in almost every way be substantially less. And that's something that you can attribute to heritage very directly and in a very controlled way. I can show you some more exact numbers. The amount of money spent on heritage-motivated trips in the UK in 20. 15-16 was close to 18 billion pounds. Um, overall, it's about 20 billion contribution to the exchequer, 5 billion of that in tax receipts, almost 400,000 jobs, um, and in uh, some of the um, non-metropolitan regions of the country, it constitutes about 2% of the overall economy. Okay. Now, uh, here's a somewhat more tangible statistic that Ali found for me, I just love this. Uh, UK historic houses alone, so privately owned heritage sites like, say, Blenheim Palace, uh, together constitute something on the order of uh, 24 million um, pounds worth of uh, revenue. Uh, the number, uh, sorry, 24 million visitors uh, in a year, last year. The number of visitors to Japan from outside of Japan was smaller than that. So that's, a, that's an indication of the demand for heritage and of the responsibility for uh, managing it right. A lot of that responsibility does rest with the trust, but of course it's distributed in, through many other organizations, English Heritage, Historic Houses Association, and so forth. Um, but the trust's particular role in that is, is certainly very substantial. It's... Um, not just about making money, as, as Hillary has put it. Uh, ways of thinking about being in the business of heritage are more subtle, and I'd like to go through that with reference to these large categories of how we think about being in any sort of business. A look at the supply chain, what it, what, what, um, uh, well, here, here, who is, who is involved. We'll look at how they do what they do, um, what it is they're doing, what else they could be doing, and why uh, those decisions are made. Now, Hillary's 
uh, talk exemplified this, and I'm going to try to explain how it, it fits perfectly with the basic model of business functioning in almost any, almost any context. Um, I want furthermore to stress that there is a, a certain amount of misunderstanding about what the trust uh, does or what heritage organizations do that is, uh, I think, rapidly diminishing. Um, when I first began working on this, in this field and doing research in this area some 10 years ago, there was an awful lot of understanding, uh, misunderstanding and anxiety about what um, uh, being commercially aware meant in the heritage sector. Generally, it was assumed to mean finding ways of making money, finding ways of making money, either by selling things, selling things off, which is generally a mistake, or selling things inside uh, the experience of heritage. Um, but as the simple statistics show, that's not the best way of making money. Far, uh, far and away, the largest sector of revenue for the trust is membership, not retail. Uh, so this understanding that it's the cream teas that make the money um, happily is, is dissipating. And uh, these other ways of thinking about being in the business of heritage um, are, are, are beginning to come much more to the fore. Now, these statistics and numbers that I've slapped up in front of you are not necessarily um, uh, revealing of, of um, the subtleties in these different ways of thinking about the, the business of heritage. Um, they're not small change, but they elide over the intrinsic nature of the heritage value, uh, this idea of cause uh, that motivates the people doing the business, as well as the membership um, for whom it is being done, arguably. Um, it's superficial to think about heritage without paying attention, basically, to how, how it's done. But we're, we're given to it, and it does somewhat promote uh, the demand um, even at that superficial level. I was thinking this morning about ways in which heritage is superficially conceived, and I just couldn't, couldn't stop coming up with uh, examples. The royal family, uh, that, that motivates an understanding of British heritage in a way that's pretty quantifiable. I, I, I don't know the numbers, but I know people have done this, this kind of research. It's a driver of economic activity. Um, there are price premiums on uh, period properties. Uh, returns on investment in, in historic environments. This, these things are, are, are easily measurable, and I'll show you some of those statistics in a minute. Um, domestic consumption and export of things like costume dramas, uh, Poldark, for example, tele television shows, heritage-themed programming. That's, that's quite considerable. I wouldn't really know how to quantify the impact of um, Poldark or Call the Midwife or the latest bodice ripper from... Pinewood Studios, but people do do, do that, and it, and, it, uh, and it more than motivates uh, other types of heritage spend. Food. Food is a form of heritage, uh, increasingly studied, in fact, uh, not just as a, as a subsector of the heritage economy, but as a, um, a measurable driver of things um, beyond simply uh, visitor experience. Uh, Dutchy Originals is not the best example of heritage-driven commercial activity, but it's indicative of something that operates on a much larger scale in, um, in the food industry, in gastropubs, in values-based um, businesses uh, with an environmental flavor in the food sector. Um, even historically informed performance practice of things such as uh, uh, theater or uh, music in, say, the Oxford Collegiate Choirs, this is um, 
essentially a, a form of costume drama in its own right and a saleable product of fairly considerable market value. In a word, cultural capital has commercial value. Um, heritage, both tangible and intangible, sells. And though this much is obvious, a better question for today is how, how does it sell? How best to sell it? Uh, how best to be in the heritage business? So there are people in this room today uh, who are in the heritage sector, business people, whom I wouldn't presume to advise on how to, how to suck eggs. But um, it is worth thinking a bit about several aspects of the, of the business of heritage and invite their expertise in the Q&A afterwards, which is uh, soon coming. Um, so let me turn to looking at these, uh, these, these through these different lenses at, at how, it is, how it is done. Um, what does it mean, a supply chain? Uh, it's a very jargonistic-y term, and just to, without, without oversimplifying, it, it's basically the, the ingredients, the resources that are required to accomplish some sort of uh, business goal. Um, and it, again, it, it involves both tangible and intangible inputs. Uh, and those processes of bringing them to wherever they need to be require management, require some sort of um, planning and controls. Um, but it also is a source of economic activity. You look upstream from a, f uh, a particular point of observation at what uh, activities are aggregating toward that point. Uh, and you can either decide to include that in your statistics. Without the National Trust, various jobs wouldn't exist. Various suppliers wouldn't have a customer. Various activities wouldn't need to occur. Um, or you can decide not to include those things or look at them separately. But in any case, it's worth thinking about heritage as a catalyst for a particularly involved um, and, uh, and resonant uh, type of supply chain. So I've already mentioned tourism. Uh, tourism is a, is a form of um, uh, supply chain to the heritage industry. Tourists come to Britain. Um, Two-thirds of them, oh, sorry, one-third of them from overseas with a specifically stated heritage tourism intention. A third of the tourists coming to this country come to see the heritage. And that's broadly conceived to include both landscape and uh, the built environment. And two-thirds of domestic tourism, so us, excuse me, us having staycations, uh, two-thirds of that is attributed to heritage-related uh, demand. So understanding what motivates that uh, is certainly important, but also understanding what uh, activity can be quantified in it uh, and attributed, therefore, to, to, her uh, to heritage. Um, nearly 300,000 jobs go into managing that tourism and uh, a, a huge contribution uh, from tourism overall, a huge uh, uh, part of the economy, 24 billion, um, a very large proportion of that is, is, uh, is, is attributable to heritage. The property and development uh, industry could be considered another supply chain to the heritage industry. There are aspects of it that are hugely influenced by, by the presence of heritage. Uh, and value is driven through the property industry uh, by heritage. In other words, people are doing property-related and development-related business differently because of heritage. 
Now, this is a lot of numbers. Um, basically, it boils down to attractive places attract businesses. So um, a lot of different types of research show that about a quarter of all businesses um, are cited in areas of some sort of historic environmental significance. Um, 138,000 of them are located in historic buildings. That's 5% of the jobs in the country coming through those particular businesses. This is 3.5% of um, the, the global value add in the economy overall attributable to historic buildings. By one measure, uh, that's an extra 13,000 pounds coming into the economy because of historic buildings. Listed properties tend to generate higher return on investment, both in the short term and in the long term. So investing in a, in a, in a historic property, while it might be complicated and might be expensive, will make you money eventually, and possibly even pretty quickly. Um, developers, even just in impressionistic terms, value involvement with historic sites. One survey shows that uh, an indicator of choice from zero to five averaged out across the survey of people saying, well, 4.3, uh, it, it matters a lot. It matters sort of 80% or to 80% of the respondents. Um, even properties near heritage sites uh, see their values increase or, 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 or marked up by about 30%. Um, and heritage events and in heritage environments uh, increase business turnover for businesses uh, connected or involved to them. Even more specifically speaking, certain uh, businesses outside of tourism, uh, but that ultimately give tourism a, a, a an end point, such as um, archaeology, can be quantified. Commercial archaeology, for example, as it's connected to the property and development business, generates revenues of close to 170 million a year, or did, or did in 2015. I could go on and on and on and on. There are all kinds of indicators that show that heritage stimulates the economy, heritage generates business for upstream or related and contributing uh, functions. Now, Hillary made a great deal of, uh, gave a lot of clarity about the efficiency of the trust. And more generally speaking, inside the heritage industry, this is not often at such a premium. Um, though the trust is, a, is very well run and other heritage organizations are very well run, that's not necessarily always um, so. Um, but um, uh, it tends to work best when there's clarity about the purposes of efficiency and the systems uh, to achieve it. I noticed when I went to meet with Hillary a few weeks ago, we had lunch in the very impressive new cafe at the headquarters there. Uh, there's a, um, this is the decor of the, of the cafe, and they're not, they're not missing a moment. Uh, this, this is for sale. Uh, look, look, there's the price tag. And it's very artfully arranged in such a way that it doesn't look like it's for sale. And in fact, it looks entirely appropriate. Uh, and where else would you go to buy something but a shop? It's, it's, it's right that it should be there, but it's also usable, sensitive, and entirely on, on message. That's just a small example of how um, the branding is shot through the operations of the cafe, of the visitor center, even in the headquarters, where the visitors are, 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 are far less about the general public and more about um, a more diverse uh, uh, set of stakeholders. Um, the, um, uh, that's an incredibly unfair example of uh, operational efficiency, but uh, I can get, I, I'd like to discuss a few others. Uh, we've mentioned volunteers. It's a large part of the trust. It's a large part of most heritage organizations. 
What are the operational implications of having perhaps a majority of your workforce unpaid? Uh, that's a, a, it creates a, a completely different managerial challenge. They, they can't be motivated in the same way. They, they have to be motivated in different ways. And understanding those ways and understanding the mechanisms um, is not something that comes naturally to most people. It's often true that people come into heritage organizations from commercial organizations and confront this reality very harshly. Um, they, they learn, but the process of learning can be slow, and in that slowness there's loss of efficiency. So where a heritage organization um, can increase the uh, efficiency of learning about management of such things unique, or not unique, but emphatic to it, such as volunteer management, uh, its overall efficiency improves. Um, all other examples might include something like um, the uh, systems and processes Hillary alluded to. I did some work with the Art Fund looking at ticketing and the, uh, trying to develop a system for efficient uh, both information and access to special exhibitions. Um, and we designed a pilot program that was very efficient along the lines of other forms of aggregated online information. But it was difficult to diffuse throughout uh, the, uh, the art and galleries um, industry, if you will, for all kinds of reasons. There are structural barriers and systemic reasons why uh, uh, operationally it was difficult to implement. Not least, and this is germane to many heritage sites, the Wi-Fi is dreadful in a lot of the country. And uh, being dependent on smartphones, any system uh, that's dependent on certain technologies that are limited, um, uh, will, will, will be accordingly limited as well. So operational efficiency, while it's always at top of mind for uh, many types of organizations and many types of industries, faces certain unique, well not unique, but special challenges of implementation in the heritage sector. Ones that are being, in exemplary ways, overcome by sensitivity to those uh, 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 the specificities. But it takes time. And it takes a certain type of skill uh, that isn't naturally uh, developed in uh, the normal career paths of either commercial organizations or even, to be honest, uh, the career paths of heritage organizations, though there is increasing convergence. And I hope we can talk about that perhaps um, uh, later in the uh, uh, discussion section. I want to turn to um, another sort of lens through which businesses do business in, in any um, context and just point to its exceptional uh, characteristics in the heritage context. Um, there is um, a lot of talk, I often get questions along the lines of what are the best business models for such and such a heritage organization? Uh, what's, the, what's the best way to think strategically about the opportunities and threats uh, um, that we're facing? Um, there is no answer to a question like that. It's an utterly unstrategic question. If, if there were a recipe to follow, there would be no advantage in doing so. Everyone could do it, and you wouldn't get ahead of anyone. You might achieve greater operational efficiency, but so would everyone else, and uh, any distinctiveness uh, in your organization uh, risked, would risk becoming erased. It's a basic tenet of strategy as a, a way of achieving competitive advantage that you seek um, uh, distinctive ways of doing things. Um, having established uh, a basis of efficiency, you then try to uh, push, push beyond that in ways that others cannot imitate, that your customers find valuable, 
that's difficult to find elsewhere and that you're actually capable of delivering on. That sort of resource-based view of strategy is fairly uh, typical and well accepted in, in most types of organizations, but it's so jargonistic uh, that it's, uh, it often doesn't export well outside of uh, its natural home in commercial organizations. Nonetheless, it's, it's, it's especially relevant um, in organizations where uh, the resources are rare to the point of being unique. Heritage properties are almost by def definition uh, unique assets. Um, inimitable, no one else has quite what is to be found in any given heritage site. Um, valuable, well, evidently, it, uh, if the membership rates and growth rates of the trust are anything to go on, valuable if, if properly managed. And that last point, properly managed, organizable in ways that uh, uh, show the organization delivering a value proposition. Um, uh, that, that's clearly possible given the uh, good example of the trust. Um, and it's a case a study for um, any other heritage organization to realize that uh, basic strategic understanding um, can, be, uh, can be achieved. Let me give you a, an example. I, I feel like I'm sort of uh, up in the air now. So here's a tangible example. I spent a very enjoyable day at a trust property earlier this week uh, with some students and Ollie. Uh, Hewenden near um, uh, High Wycombe. Uh, it's a it's a it's a one-story site. It's about Disraeli. It was his house, and so everything is about Disraeli. Except about two-thirds of the structure were built after Disraeli died, and that's a resource that is essentially slack. Now it's clear the trust is thinking about how to tighten up on that, but it has to be done strategically. It can't be done. Um, reactively or contingently because the costs involved in uh, utilizing that resource are going to be considerable and the implications of doing it in the wrong way might be uh, value destroying. But there's clearly opportunity to be embraced uh, in that um, capacity outside of the basic mission of the, of the site uh, that would benefit the trust more broadly. So strategically thinking about how one site can bring benefit to other sites or to a network or to a region. Um, is, is, is clearly the kind of thinking that's going on in, in the trust uh, in conversation between um, the people responsible for Hewenden and the others that they, they interact with. Um, all right, let me suggest then that what is as often as not happening in uh, operational uh, and strategic terms in the heritage uh, industry or in heritage businesses is essentially um, entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurial mindsets are what make the world go round when there's resource constraint. Um, we have, I have hundreds of examples of highly entrepreneurial heritage sites uh, and of examples in the supply chain of the heritage industry on the education side where entrepreneurial thinking is, is being strongly um, invested in. So, Ali mentioned earlier the Oxford Cultural Leaders Program, there are comparable programs for developing uh, leadership in the cultural sectors, the, the Calore Leadership Program perhaps most famously. The University of Birmingham has a program in conjunction with Iron Bridge, a, a, an outdoor heritage site. Oops, excuse me. Um, and numerous other examples of where entrepreneurial thinking is being quite specifically embraced 
and not so much applied, but integrated into the doing of business in the heritage sector. Um, so how, how, how is that being done, and in what spirit? Well, briefly, um, it's about another balancing act. Hillary talked about balancing uh, uh, various uh, uh, poles of, of spectrum, so conservation and, and uh, commerciality, or visitor engagement and commerciality, and so forth. Uh, let's think of another um, balancing act, although it is the definition of a business school professor, which is what I am, that all that is beautiful in the world can be reduced into a two-by-two two matrix. So I <laughs> apologize for doing it. I'm going to do it again, too, but I'll, I'll skate quickly over this. Thinking about how to plot against each other or across each other uh, the, the necessary skills, uh, the skills that go into managing this supply chain, achieving this operational efficiency, developing the right type of strategic insight in an entrepreneurial mindset for the heritage context. Having too low a managerial skill set or too low a focus on what opportunities might be out there might define you as someone who invents things but doesn't know what to do with them. Having very high involvement in both of those things might define you as someone who's a serial entrepreneur, always moving from one new insight, setting it up, and then handing it off to others to, to really manage. Um, innovators are perceptive of opportunity but not so interested in managing them and trustees uh, perhaps the opposite uh, uh, there to manage uh, the, the entrepreneurial or opportunistic insights of others you need all of this in an organization and where it's um, underbalanced in any one quadrant uh, your options are diminished uh, your decisions about uh, uh, what you could do tend to be limited or um, uh, uh, triaged away by, uh, by anxiety. Um, whereas a somewhat more opportunity-oriented um, uh, mindset, an entrepreneurial mindset represented by my next two-by-two two matrix, um, can, uh, can, can uh, produce um, something a bit more appropriate in a in a heritage context. Now, I don't propose to go through this in a lot of detail because I need to stop in about two minutes, but uh, I want to just produce something that is the result of observing how heritage organizations work. Uh, this refinement to um, uh, a series of uh, business frameworks um, based on observing how heritage organizations uh, engage in the practice of what they do, how they do business, um, uh, is something that um, seems to be uh, properly descriptive of, um, of heritage as business. Um, it's, I'm not, as I say, I'm not going to go through it, but basically it's looking at a macro level at the context in which you're operating, uh, so all those things about um, supply chain and uh, the, the overall economy are worth uh, considering in making decisions but so too are um, external factors like what other people are doing or what other um, activities people could do instead of engaging with you. Um, and then on a more micro level, it's worth thinking about why people are attracted to you, what are the drivers of, of demand and how you can um, connect with them in a sustainable way. So, so clearly uh, indicated by uh, Hillary's discussion of how careful attention to things like uh, visitor engagement 
uh, is, creates a virtuous cycle of rising membership, rising data for how to satisfy members, uh, an easier ability to deliver satisfaction um, uh, cost efficiently. I, at the risk of having become no longer either uh, moving or inspiring, I think, and erring too much on the didactic, I think I'll try to end um, with uh, something a bit more narrative-based. So um, here's, a, here's, a, here's a guy. Anyone recognize him? It could be. It could have been. Um, it's Milton Friedman who unleashed into the world this rather awkward concept. Uh, the business of business is business. Now some people say, uh, ballyhoo, yes. Others say, bunkum, no. Uh, it's a very debatable uh, phrase, um, but easy enough to put in contrast to an, another comment. Recognize this guy? Oxford guy. No one ever recognizes him, even with the Nietzschean mustache. It's uh, Walter Pater, uh, late 19th century uh, aesthetic theoretician and uh, uh, responsible for that bon mot, uh, the idea that art is for art's sake. Now, somewhere in, in this continuum of business for business sake and the business of art is art, as it were, um, is where I think uh, the heritage industry or businesses in heritage should be. And I can represent that with another uh, person who represents both Oxford and the Trust. Recognize him? William Morris and his beard. Um, this is one of his more famous statements. Have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. And that seems to me to encapsulate this uh, mashup of, uh, of art on one side and business on another. Let's, let's keep thinking about Morris just for a minute. Um, he made a lot of money. He created a lot of art. He left heritage, some of which is managed by the trust, some of which is managed by other organizations. Um, he created sense of style, modes of production, ideas and understandings of work, uh, and of how to appreciate the products of work, whether that be uh, uh, industrial work or aesthetic work, um, that remain fascinating and, and in large ways deterministic of um, management theory today as much as of aesthetic theory today. And he formulated a lot of those ideas very near Oxford. Um, and his contribution is well celebrated by the trust and in the Trusted Source project where there's a number of small articles about Morris and his ideas and, and, uh, and output. There's another one though. The other William Morris. Um, it is amazing that two Williams Morris based in and around Oxford at kind of the same period of time, although the second one was a little younger um, and ended up as Lord instead of Sir. Uh, William Morris, Lord Nuffield, uh, the, the, the Henry Ford of Britain, um, who in being a businessman became a philanthropist of enormous proportions. I can't do the conversion in my mind today, but he certainly stands as one of the largest ever private philanthropists in the history of the United Kingdom. And his mark left on the trust is considerable, just as it is massive on Oxford. I think, I think he counts as Oxford's um, basically largest ever donor. Um, the coincidence of two Williams Morris in the same place is worth thinking about. It makes you think about uh, the business of heritage and how it takes a lot of 
of resource, but it also takes a lot of sensitivity. And these two are not extremes of a spectrum, but different species of the same kind of um, sensibility that understands the integral nature of, of business and heritage. I have one more uh, little example that's incredibly close to home. Uh, Mrs. Code, uh, a businesswoman enormously successful in her time, a career girl avant la lettre. Uh, she began her business in the 1770s, I think, although the details are all there on the Trusted Source website. Very <laughs> fine article by our colleague William White um, about um, how this artificial stone was invented by her business partners and sold by her, uh, resulting in uh, major changes in architectural style and, and major influence on the architectural um, history of, of, of England. There's an example of it right outside, although I think it's a modern recreation of code stone in the, in the Triton. It was a type of artificial stone that was much more easily sculptable than uh, proper stone or other forms of ceramics. And in fact, it is a, a type of ceramic. Um, but um, it resulted in aesthetic expression and economic activity that sustained not just uh, one business for a very long period of time. I think Mrs. Code died in the 1840s, uh, and her business has been revived now in the, in the early 21st century. It sustained not just uh, that economic activity, but the aesthetic activity that is uh, so much uh, in evidence in so many uh, heritage properties around us today. So just ending on those tantalizing narratives of how these people, their achievements, span um, the business of heritage in ways we've really only begun to think about, but by observing each other's domains of theory and practice, uh, we're improving what each of us does, and I hope that we can long continue working in conjunction with each other. Thank you. Can you hear me, first of all? Is the mic on? Huge amount of information, I think, to process there, and I must apologise, because it takes me time to process stuff. Stuff, I use that terrible word. Um, it takes me time to process things. And I'm someone who thinks out aloud, so you may well hear a lot of nonsense before you get to a succinct question, but... Starting to think out aloud, I'd like to pick up, I think, Hiram, where you started, which was thinking about the cost of conservation. Sorry, the cost of, of, of our activity, the cost of our success. And I'd like to pick up, Pegram, on your point about the massive figures that, that heritage, are involved in the heritage sector. It's no coincidence that you know, the government has published a tourism action plan, and, and actually that tourism action plan is translated into a green paper that was published in January um, around building our industrial strategy and actually the heritage industry plays a key role in that. And all of these things are sort of based on this concept of growth. Um, but sort of alarm bells are ringing in my head as you were talking about the cost of, of our current um, business model. So actually how sustainable is it? And, and given the huge change that, that the heritage sector has seen in how it operates its business over the last 20 years, what might that look like in, you know, in 20 years' time? Um, so the, the challenge of growth, we talk about virtually every day. Um, I was at a talk this time last year, roughly, um, and I went through some of our own archives, and in sort of, must be at least 50, 60 years ago, I came across a document to say, 
I think at that stage we had just under a million uh, members and there was a document that went to the equivalent of the exec team at the time to say we must stop these people coming to our properties <laughs> um, because you know simply it's you know we can't sustain this and and here we are on 500 members still grappling with that same same question without a doubt growth is a challenge let's be honest about that uh, we know that visitors when they come will put pressure on this wonderful historic asset that we have the other side of what we do as an organization though is access um, we are here for the benefit of the nation and so we always have to balance ensuring that people get access and benefit from our, from our properties um, while still making sure that we look after them and, and we've become really creative and I would say entrepreneurial in how we do that. Uh, we have lots of strategies from dispersing our visitors so uh, you know we, we, we're encouraging more and more visitors to not window the properties themselves but um, go around the parkland for example we have introduced time tickets we have introduced uh, low hours and high hours to try to reduce the peaks when people come and go so we're constantly trying to find ways to manage our visitors more effectively and we'll continue to do that we're working with merlin at the moment to understand how they we're getting very sophisticated about how to manage our visitors but there is no doubt that there will be pressures and some properties just simply cannot and should not we put under visitor pressure and so we're, we're going to look at some properties that actually we will restrict the numbers we will go to not only time tickets but we'll, we'll reduce and control the number of people that will go to properties so we're very mindful of it do i think it's sustainable yes i do i particularly i mean we often quote um about 200 million people 20 million roughly go to our pay for entry properties and less than that go into the houses. About 200 million go to our outdoor sites. And in terms of the support for the organisation, what we do, actually one of our big challenges is to capture the value from those people that go to our outdoor sites, putting less pressure on the, on the, the pay for entry sites. So we have a range of different strategies to address the problem, but I think we have, we have a responsibility to ensure that we maintain access and, and we balance that, obviously, from a conservation point of view. And the, but the access can be driven in lots of different ways, and that's why I, I put up the slide. It doesn't all have to be about visiting, although visiting and the actual experience is pretty much our USP. But there are other ways for people to access what we do, and we'll look to, to drive those as well. Um, so from an entrepreneurial perspective, if entrepreneurship is about uh, pursuing opportunity um, without regard to the resources that you can control, uh, you have to think about wh what resources are out of your control. And in the case of the rapid growth and pressure on, on the, let's call it the, the resource of um, uh, the, 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 the health or the, or the physical care uh, of a site, uh, if that's constrained by extremely high demand, uh, how do you manage that? So, so there, there, in other words, it's a spur to innovation. I mean, what Hillary is saying is that because of the uh, the good problem that you have of e extremely high demand for certain sites, you innovate. Um, it, it doesn't mean you uh, innovate beyond the core purpose of of, uh, of of conservation. It actually means you in innovate within the core purpose of conservation. But it's, it's hiding innovation inside conservation. Uh, and, and it operates exactly the same way as it would in any other entrepreneurial context. And picking up on, on that, I mean, 
if we were to take that, that question, you know, what, what's the biggest opportunity, what's the biggest change that might come our way in the next 10, 20 years, what do you think it might be? <laughs> Maybe that's a horribly unstrategic question. But, uh, no, no. I have no idea. <laughs> 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 I mean, I, I think the further digital um, access is going to be our, probably our biggest opportunity and finding ways to, well, I don't think we could even conceive of where digital access will take us at this moment in time. We, we know that increasingly people want to access information about us uh, from a digital point of view, but I think there'll be ways that will, will be very different. I, a small example. Um, last week I was at a property where has anybody got you know children of age tenish they'll know about Minecraft anybody know about Minecraft somebody described it as cocaine for twelve year olds but so a property in what happens this in Northern Ireland where the children will come along they will do a Minecraft project so build a tower on the Minecraft thing. I'm not quite sure exactly how you do it, but um, so it's in the middle of the computer basically. Uh, but then they go and see the tower in situ. Um, and so they're making the connection between what is what they spent most of the time doing to the to the real thing. And so they're really learning in a way that is relevant to them. So I think it's a tiny example and pretty immature at the moment, but so, so I think there's just real mileage in that. So while I will always be of the view that the trust delivers the real experience, that is what we're about. There will be other opportunities to, to get people to enjoy and get benefit from. Yeah, I think it, it, um, digital is, a, is an excellent uh, example of a very large trend, and and, it, and it's great that you think of it as an opportunity. And, and you know where organisations think of it as a, a obligation, they're not being uh, they're not embracing uh, their own potential. Um, another really excellent example of heritage-related digital opportunism is an extraordinary effort in the Bodleian Library, um, Rykut uh, Manor, a house that no longer exists, has been recreated digitally uh, using archival material that wouldn't really be accessible to the general public because it's all in fragile document form, nor would it be particularly interesting for the most part. But using that material, uh, the archivists have recreated something digitally uh, that, that, that otherwise wouldn't be there. And I'm sure there will be more such examples. 3D, 3D printing yeah. would be another thing that would make. 3D printing, ways of, of uh, mediating between the preservation mis uh, mission and the access mission using digital or other te technologies uh, that, that take the pressure off uh, conservation. Thank you. I'd like to move on to the concept of entrepreneurship. Um, Pegram, you gave some really helpful guides and pointers to, to, to some of the sort of constituent ingredients of, of that approach. Um, I was just thinking about how entrepreneurship has been perceived in, in the charity sector and, and in the heritage sector. Um, and sometimes it's been seen negatively. Sometimes entrepreneurs moving into the sector have been seen negatively. And, and I was talking to someone the other day who said, you know, there's a really weird phenomenon that happens, which is captains of industry move into a charity and somehow a binary switch in their brain flicks the other way and they sort of go into charity mode and they seem to forget all of the skills they had when they were operating in a different environment. Do you think that happens? Do you think there's anything we can be doing to, 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 to better see the transfer of skills across sectors or, or are there things within the sectors that the, the two sectors can learn from each other? 
love to be thought of as a captain of industry. Um, <laughs> certainly not. Uh, one of the things that I was sitting there actually thinking I, I should have touched on in my presentation, one of the big things that I'm convinced has been a key for the Trust in the last 10 years was the introduction of the concept of the general manager. So, broadly speaking, pre-10 years ago, generally everything that happened in the Trust was decided centrally, and we told the properties what to do. And about 10, a bit more than that, to 10 years ago, we actually said, you know what, what we need are, will be people, great leaders, who will run their properties, lead their properties, and feel like they, their property is theirs, that they can be entrepreneurial, that they can think that if this was theirs, what would they do? Now, obviously, that's within the context of a very clear strategy, within plans, with, you know, there's very clear sort of framework around which they would operate like that. But what we, re we refer to this as the delegation model, where general managers feel they've got their finance, because their property will have a, a financial model, that will allow them to plan for the long-term future and be entrepreneurial within that framework. And without a doubt, that has released entrepreneurial thinking like we had never seen before. Um, and we've got some general managers here today, so if you want to talk to some of them, talk to them over there. Um, and I think that's been really, really important in terms of how you can give people the, the ability to enable them to be entrepreneurial. I don't think, I, I would be very clear that not everybody in business is brilliant at this stuff, by the way. And just because you're in business doesn't mean to say you've something to teach the charitable sector. Very often the charitable sector has a lot to teach business. But it, there is something about feeling enabled and empowered to think entrepreneurial. Yeah, it's. I, mean, I often get asked, how do you teach entrepreneurship? It's like asking someone, how do you teach poetry? Uh, you don't, but you create an environment in which people feel empowered to, to be or become or, in, or to learn in their own way. And you know, where organizations like the Trust or other charities have made these structural changes to uh, enable entrepreneurial uh, behaviors, um, the results are almost always very fast. Uh, far faster than some program of education or training. Um, and it's increasingly recognized, even in uh, large corporate businesses, that the charitable sector has been, has been quick to adapt uh, its entrepreneurial uh, behaviors, partly because it's more used to dealing with resource constraint. It, it's, a, it's a more natural place for entrepreneurial behaviors to, to flourish or to, or to be effective. So there really is a lot for the for the uh, charitable and heritage sectors um, to, uh, to um, uh, add to, to others on that basis. Thank you. So we as a sector might be able to help with that. How can, how can business schools help with our sort of sustaining, um, sorry, sorry, I'll try. how can business schools help us with, with cracking that, that, that sustainability challenge around, around heritage? So business schools, what's their role? I, I, I think that um, business schools themselves are, are changing to realize that uh, business is, the business of business is more than business. Um, certainly uh, Oxford competes with other institutions on, on that basis, trying to attract students who are interested in working in a, a, a very wide variety of organizations um, and applying certain transferable skills uh, across uh, sectors way beyond those that are purely commercial. So um, increasingly business schools see their remit as, as, as training leaders and managers for all kinds of organizations. 
Uh, how do they do that? Well, I think um, a lot of it is um, abandoning some of the very conventional forms of business education that concentrate on the mechanics uh, and instead orient uh, students around um, values, uh, understanding uh, 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 humans uh, instead of processes alone, um, on integrating with other aspects of, of study and education and learning. So where a business school like Said is embedded in a large organization like Oxford, uh, or where Ashridge can have links with other, other university departments around it in, in Reading, um, it informs the business education. Um, and, and I think we're seeing more and more people come out of business education wanting careers in charitable sector, uh, social enterprise functions, uh, or, or, or certainly in, in the heritage sector. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that, actually, um, several of people I've worked with and trust on myself, you know, have been at various courses, have been to the one in reputation, one here. Um, so we do, cost is an issue for us, and let's be honest about that. Um, but where possible, we really do try hard to ensure that our own staff feel equipped and supported and have the access to the kinds of training and research that you can um, offer. But there's also, uh, I think, the sense of desire, certainly, and we have a huge commitment in terms of developing our people um, for people to develop business skills. So we have, we have a lot of people, essentially, who are on MBAs. There's quite a lot of people who are continuously wanting to learn more about uh, business skills that may have come directly through you know, various uh, heritage sectors. So I think the opportunity is definitely there. How to make it accessible, affordable, and all of those things. I think, well, let's be honest, be, continue to be a challenge, but there are other ways of doing it that is not simply that kind of no course. Yeah, it doesn't require sending people on courses. There are all kinds of ways of bringing the business school out to uh, different audiences. And, uh, and you know, such uh, collaborative activities as this are, are one, one example. And I've got one last question before, before I open questions to the floor. Hilary, you mentioned systems and um, integrated systems. Can you just explain a little bit more what that means and why they're so important to the business? I shouldn't look so stressful, should I? Um, SSP, System Simplification Programme, was one of the first things that um, I think, Helen, when you come into the organisation, as you do, went around the country and, you know, in the first sort of hundred days asked everybody, what would you like? And you expected everybody to say, well, I want a new roof or I want this or I want that. And actually, most of them said, we'd like new tins, please. <laughs> this is the harsh reality of it. was dating, actually, yes. And in, in, exactly. So, and literally, it's a little tiny building, no bigger than this. And he was really struggling with his till. Um, and what he meant by that actually was having a, has a, having a till that talked to the back office so he could replenish, that he could serve his customers, you know, that the, that the actual drawer would come out actually at that stage. I mean, the state of our um, tills system meant that every property had a different till. So if you were in the shop, you wouldn't know how to use the till in the, in, the, in the catering area. Never mind those tills talking to each other. Never mind those tills talking to head office. We were in the sort of 19th century as far as back office support was concerned. But it was really interesting because if you ask most general managers, 
this will be top of their list. This is the reality of just trying to operate off a day. They need the systems to work for them because otherwise they lose time, they lose efficiency, they lose customer service when they're grappling with these archaic systems. Um, the one thing I have learned from SSP, we're just so you know, we're into our fourth year of it, really, from you know, concept design stage through delivery, whatever. It's been really painful. That is something to learn if you're ever going to do this. It will not be straightforward. Um, there will always be challenges, particularly if you have uh, a portfolio like ours that, as you mentioned, um, are up mountains and in valleys and the Wi-Fi doesn't work and just about every other thing is likely to go wrong. But systems are essential. And I suppose my learning from it is they will take time. Everybody I spoke to, I spoke to the post office, I spoke to all sorts of different people who put systems in and they all said, it's a nightmare. Oh, you're, you're, you're only six months over time. That's nothing. We're five years. So. So systems are essential, you can't get away with them, and the other thing about them is they won't, it's not a case of we've now got the system and I can leave that alone. Already we know that we're going to have to start to update that system. We're going to have to start to find new ways to interface with other systems in the organisation and so on. And so understanding that you're in this for the long term and that your investment needs to be on a, on a rolling cycle just comes with the territory, I'm afraid.